Hello from Yerushalayim and Beit Shemesh. It's Binyamin Rose and myself, Gedali Gutenteig, with Mishpachah's Home Front, a series covering Israel's biggest conflict in a generation. Binyamin, not such great news this morning. Unfortunately not. We're hearing mounting numbers of IDF casualties in Gaza. And can't give an exact number, obviously, because it's basically a number that can change over uh, the period of time. Uh, again, we just have to continue to daven for the soldiers and to give all the support that we possibly can in every way that we possibly can. And to daven also that this campaign is miraculously wrapped up as quickly as possible and that we can emerge with the least number of casualties possible. You know, Benjamin, I think one of the Tehillim on all of our minds, many people's mouths, and also thinking about the meaning, and one of them is always comes to mind, is the one that says, Hamalamid Yodai Lakrov at Ba'isalim al-Khamada. Hashem teaches, David, David said, Hashem teaches or trains him to succeed in battle. And the, and the distinction there in Karav and Milchama is often made between the idea that one is close quarters battle and one is long range. And that's some of them for Hashem explain. And unfortunately, what is going on there is both types of battle we've got. And I think we're going to talk about those. These nine or 12 soldiers who died yesterday, eight of them seem to have been killed in an armored personnel carrier that was hit, presumably, it's said by a rocket-propelled grenade, but it was presumably by something more advanced than that in Gaza. And the perils of close-quarter battles in which since Israel has got one of the world's most advanced armored personnel carriers, but in the close quarters there, these missiles that they fire at them are deadly. And, and unfortunately, it is so easy. And this is what we have been fearful of all along and knew it was coming. As they got into the Gaza city itself and in suburbs, the traps that they've set for close quarter battle make it very, very difficult to evade. So while there's a very effective media blackout, both from the Israeli center and because Hamas are not publishing everything they have, presumably because it doesn't uh, reflect well on them, and also the Palestinian uh, communications network are down again because of the IDF action. That means that we've not got a lot of information about what's going on in there inside Gaza, but we're getting hints about the type of warfare that's going on. And one of those things is a lot for the IDF to learn. Many of its officers have never tasted battle, at least not of this fierceness. Um, the fact is, this is a very new war because it's the Israeli army's first drone war in which the enemy, Israel has been using drones for a long time, but the enemy is now using drones. And one of the things that they're using them from is suicide drones armed with these little quadcopters that you can basically buy off the shelf. And they've retooled them so that they can drop grenades or dive with a, some explosive onto the top of a tank, which is the weak point of the tank. And for that reason, we see these cages, the cages that have been welded onto the top of uh, IDF tanks. And you'll see a lot of them operating with there in Gaza. And that's something that's been learned from the Ukrainian-Russian war. Both sides now routinely use these drones and therefore know to against the enemy's armor. And so they're both sides using these cages. This thing is set to become standard, and we're seeing that. And that's indication of the fact this is a new battle for the IDF to master, one in new battle space, new tactics. Another thing that I think we can see looking in from the outside is the intensity of the fire from both sides, obviously, especially in the IDF. What Ynet was reporting this morning was that it gives us some indication in, in how they're operating. The army, as we now know, we can cover in the last couple of days, has been advancing slowly, very slowly. And you can track that slowly but steadily. And the way they're doing that is rolling artillery blankets, an air force blanket of literally pounding the ground a few hundred meters in front of the either advancing 
uh, tanks. And most of the combat that's gone on so far has apparently been tank and not face-to-face uh, infantry battles on Gaza. In terms of long range, we also see that the Houthis are acting up in Yemen. They're firing missiles now on a daily basis toward uh, Israel, probably the Elat area. According to uh, foreign reports, uh, one was either intercepted uh, by Saudi Arabia or down in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the U.S. has intercepted a couple. Uh, Israel has now rushed uh, one of its naval ships to uh, the Elat area in order to help intercept missiles. This could be deadly because the Houthis have long-range missiles. They're very powerful. They're probably three times as powerful in payload as uh, the rockets that uh, Hamas is firing from Gaza. So they could cause immense damage if, God forbid, one of them should land. So that's something that we have to watch out for. That could be one of the reasons why Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, is coming to Israel again. One of the reports I read, you probably saw this too, is that Blinken is timing his visit for Friday when Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, is scheduled to give a public speech. And possibly Blinken is here to counteract that or to give a chizuk to Israel at that time. That all remains to be seen. We don't entirely know what his agenda is, but we have read that uh, yesterday in the congressional testimony, Blinken once again raised the prospect of what he called a revamped and uh, revitalized Palestinian authority taking control in Gaza after the military campaign is over, which again shows me that the U.S. is still laboring under fantasies that the Palestinian Authority is a governing body that can take control of Gaza. Uh, The Palestinian Authority has said they're not interested in uh, that kind of plan. Uh, Israel has basically said it's not interested in that kind of plan. Uh, If Antony Blinken and Joe Biden are the only ones who think this is viable, it's not going to fly. So if that's the real reason why he's coming, I, I think he's wasting his time. You mentioned that they're laboring under fantasies and under delusions. And the greatest delusion of all surely has to be that it can be business as usual with Tehran. And this is an administration that has, in the face of all evidence, labored again and again over years to try and put some agreement back on the table with the Iranians. I mean, what we are now seeing, and surely Blinken and Biden should understand that, is that Iran has activated three of its proxy forces. Obviously, Hamas being number one in in Gaza, we have the Hezbollah, which seems to want to drag Israel in by inflict the death of a thousand cuts on the current peaceful situation on the northern border. And the Houthis being the the third. At what point do the Americans say, well, this is three tentacles of the octopus that are now active. With the octopus itself, we cannot continue business as usual. At what point does that happen? It's been my fervent hope, and anyone who reads my columns every week would know that it's been my fervent hope that the U.S. would drop and change their policy of trying to appease Iran. And I'm afraid now with the appointment of Jack Lew, who basically passed the Senate's muster yesterday, he was, the Senate voted 53 to 43 to approve Lew's nomination as U.S. ambassador to Israel. Lew, I I wouldn't necessarily call him one of the architects of uh, the Obama administration, Iran policy, but he definitely facilitated it. Uh, There was a report issued in uh, 2017 or 2018 by Rob Portman, who uh, is now a retired U.S. Senator, Republican from Ohio. He was chairman of the Senate Homeland Security Committee. And he basically showed how even though the U.S. was supposed to deny access to uh, Iran being able to convert uh, their assets into dollars, 
that Jack Lewis secretary as treasury secretary, which that was the position he was holding at the time, was trying to uh, facilitate it. The only reason that it didn't go through was because two major U.S. banks were concerned about legalities and they were concerned about their reputation and they refused to let it go through. So this never passed, but this is something we have to be on top of. Now, I understand that a lot of officials in Israel know Jack Lew and like Jack Lew and feel they can work with them. So that's, that's good to know. I also want to say one thing that I, I hope this doesn't come across the wrong way, but I have to say it. We've heard a lot about Jack Lew being an Orthodox Jew and God bless him. But this is not Beinodim Lamakom at this point. His relations with uh, Israel is going to be Beinodim Lechavero. And it doesn't really matter to me how orthodox Jack Lou is or how he observes or how he doesn't observe. What's important is that, and I understand that he's going to have to represent the U.S. interests to Israel, and he's not the Israeli ambassador to America. But again, at a certain point, when does a person understand that the policy they followed is wrong, hasn't worked, and needs to be corrected and updated? And that's what I'd like to see out of Jack Lou. I'd add to that, that he's going to be coming into an arena in which Israel has a sort of fragile consensus, but I think a consensus left and right, that something needs to be done and that we cannot stop. And that despite these horrific losses and the many Leviathans that are going to be happening today of these poor families with the young boys who they sent off a few weeks ago to fight and they are not coming back and et cetera, despite that. There is a recognition that 10, 15% of Israel is now uninhabitable unless we do something about it. And I think, therefore, we could be reaching the stage. But you know, I just want to add into this toxic brew. What we saw last night was the first cracks in the Biden's uh, administration's open spot for Israel, because I think the spokesman was busy saying, well, we could entertain the need not for a ceasefire, but for a, for a humanitarian pause. But from a humanitarian pause to let some aid in calls for a ceasefire. And from a ceasefire comes tremendous international pressure. It could be that we're going to come to the day, not too far, where Bibi Netanyahu is going to have to decide, do I have the guts to stand up to our biggest benefactor, to the United States, to do what's right for Israel, to tell the American ambassador and the foreign secretary and Biden himself, you have been wonderfully supportive. We know that we have to stand up for ourselves now. And as long as the Israeli consensus holds on that, then he will be in a position to do so to actually go for the first time to say to the Americans, sorry, we cannot listen to you now. It is our people first. And I know I've said this before, but I sense that this is the way things are approaching and perhaps faster than we'd hoped. Benny Gantz said the other night that we'll take advice from our friends, but we're going to do what we need to do. Uh, so as long as there's unity in this new war cabinet, uh, the chances are that we will do what we have to do. And uh, we'll continue because once we cease fire, basically, uh, I don't see us going back to the battle again. Yeah, we've had a, a practice to note some bright spots, but to be honest, I don't feel so many bright spots this morning. My thoughts are too full of the list of those four families who are getting the notices this morning and their brave sons fell in action yesterday. And we don't know what's going on uh, there now. At the very moment, I think, just to conclude on the note, that other outfillers and everyone outfillers are with. All those who've got their sons serving there, may Hashem bring Rachmanus and Amisra very quickly as you began with. Binyamin, we'll meet together tomorrow for some better news.